Hello, and welcome back to the Passive Present Podcast. This is your host, Kim Groves, hoping you've been having a lovely week. Again, allow me to apologize for missing last Thursday's talk. I had a lot of stuff going on in the office, and I was having technical difficulties in the studio, and I just generally wasn't feeling so well, so I just needed to take a day to sort of recuperate. I'm telling you the allergies have been very bad this year and I just had completely lost my voice. I hope you enjoyed our talk on the Sermon on the Mount about taking revenge um, and what we should, how we should treat our enemies. And I think those two topics on revenge and taking care, taking how you should treat your enemies kind of go hand in hand. Um, because we, we should always treat our enemies kindly, even if we feel they don't deserve it. Now, as I promised last week, and I promised you on Monday, I am going to be talking today about the Queen of Sheba. And I, I always have been intrigued by the Queen of Sheba, because the Bible doesn't really tell us too much about her. So... Uh, it's interesting to, uh, our article today is actually going to talk and delve into where she was exactly from. So to start, uh, our article is entitled, Arabia or Africa, Where is the Land of Sheba? And this comes from the September-October 2016 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review. And uh, as you know, I get most of my uh articles from there, that the exception of a, a handful that I get from uh, other sources. Um, so this article is by Bar Krebus. And um, so a little bit about what the Bible says about the Queen of Sheba. And please forgive me, uh, the barking you hear in the background is my neighbor's dog, Charlie, who is looks like a sheep and a wolf all at the same time, but is a sweet old Muppet. He looks like like as if he was a Muppet from uh, Sesame Street. He is hysterical and I love that uh, dog. And you also will hear my cat uh, playing around with my printer here. That was one of the technical difficulties we had in the studio. We were trying to uh, s sort out having a dedicated printer here for my work on the podcast. So um, my computer decided it was going to crash completely and we had to figure out this whole printer situation. So it was just a hot mess last week. Um, so in the Bible, the Queen of Sheba is not named specifically. In other words, we don't know what her actual name is. She's only referred to as the Queen of Sheba. So she actually is introduced to us in 1 Kings and uh, she is meeting with King Solomon. And he, she had heard of his great, great wisdom, and she wanted to partake of his wisdom. And she traveled to Jerusalem to test him, and his, he uh, justified his reputation. Uh, the Bible tells us that Solomon answered all of her questions, and not even half had been told to her. Um, she presented Solomon with gifts of gold, spices, and precious stones, and she praised, quote, the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So Solomon reciprocated with gifts and the Queen of Sheba, quote, returned to her own land, unquote. 
But no mention is made in the Bible of the queen's beauty or a love affair with, the king, with King Solomon or the queen's bearing King Solomon a son. So why is she often perceived as a beautiful queen who had a love affair with the king? And why is it considered common knowledge that this queen came from Ethiopia? So we've got just kind of over the years biblically accepted that the queen of Sheba was from Africa. Or Ethiopia to be, you know, more specific. So as often the case with a lot of these very short, um, intriguing Bible stories that leave a lot to the imagination, the Queen's, Queen of Sheba's visit has been elaborated in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions. So the most detailed and influential development of the story appears in a book titled The Kebra Nagast, which is The Glory of Kings which is a cornerstone of Ethiopian Orthodox identity and theology. So the dating of this work is sort of controversial, though um, some scholars do date as, as late as the 14th century of the Common Era. Others contend it's based on earlier traditions that go back as far as the 6th century of the Common Era. So that would be uh, uh, Common Era being uh, AD. Okay, So... Basically, the, the, the brief we get out of the uh, Kebra Nagast is that the Queen of Sheba was beautiful, a beautiful queen of Ethiopia. And it states that on her return from Jerusalem, she, uh, the queen gave birth to Solomon's firstborn son, known as Menelik, in the Ethiopian tradition. Menelik journeyed to Jerusalem as a young man, where he was received with honor by Solomon. When Solomon announced his intention to appoint Menelik as his heir, the next king of Israel, Menelik actually refused because he wanted to return home. Solomon was saddened at this, that, that, at this and ordered his firstborn sons of the elders of the kingdom to accompany Menelik and establish a new Israel in Ethiopia. So now the story gets a little weird. So before Menelik departed, an angel appeared to the son of the Israelite high priest, who was to accompany Menelik to make a and told him, told this um, eldest son to make a replica of the Ark of the Covenant and to replace the real Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the Temple with the fake. So only during the journey to Ethiopia did Menelik discover the true Ark of the Covenant was being carried in his entourage. In the meantime, Solomon discovered the true Ark had been removed from the temple but he was divinely instructed not to have it returned. That it was actually God's will that the ark, and with it the grace of God, would depart from Israel and its people and reside in Ethiopia. To this day, Ethiopian Christians claim the Ark of the Covenant resides in a chapel next to the church of Mariam to Zion, which is Mary of Zion, the central church in the ancient Ethiopian capital of Aksum. So, Ethiopian Christians actually see the presence of the Ark in Ethiopia as proof they are God's chosen people. So these kings were seen as direct descendants of the house of David, rulers by divine right. Because if you remember, Solomon was the son of David. So... Um, the view of themselves as Israel... Uh, after the flesh and not only after the spirit may have been one of the reasons leading to the development of a number of unique qualities of Ethiopian of the Ethiopian church. 
Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity sees many of the religious laws of the Old Testament and the New Testament as binding. And Ethiopian Christians circumcise their sons on the eighth day like Jews, and they observe biblical dietary laws, and they consider Saturday a holy day. Because um, it does say um, that the seventh day is holy, and in the traditional calendar, what we call Saturday would be considered actual actually the seventh day and Monday and I'm sorry Sunday would be the first day of the week okay the Ethiopian Christians view of themselves as Israelites is in this author's opinion best demonstrated by the meeting that took place in 1908 between Emperor Menelik II and Jacques Fetlevich the activist who dedicated his life to building a connection between Ethiopian Jews and the Jewish world. Fetlevich presented the emperor with books that he had written and translated, and he describes the emperor's reaction when he came across Hebrew text in one of the books. And he says, the emperor asked me which language this was, and his answer was that, that was the, my answer was that this is the Hebrew religion, and that amazed the emperor and asked if I could read him a few lines. He said, I want to hear the language of my ancestors. So now one kind of a challenge to this, the, the Kebra Nagas narrative that has been raised is that there is a well-documented kingdom of Sheba, which is called Saba, that existed in biblical times. It is documented historically and archaeologically, and it was not in Ethiopia, but rather in southern Arabia, which is modern-day Yemen. So, moreover, the kingdom of Saba was well known in Ethiopia, and it was the greatest of the South Arabian kingdoms in biblical times. It is Ethiopia's neighbor on the opposite shore of the Red Sea. So, Ethiopia actually had extensive contacts with Saba. And after the kingdom's demise in the third century of the Common Era, Ethiopia preserved its memory in ecclesiastic literature. There is a clear distinction in this literature between the kingdom of Aksum in Ethiopia and the kingdom of Saba or Sheba. The Kebra Nagast claims the queen of Sheba was the queen of Ethiopia and hence that Ethiopia was the biblical kingdom of Sheba. So this identification is really common knowledge in Ethiopia and around the world. So how come there's a dual dis identification of Sheba? So the answer is sort of a roundabout way of getting there. The beginning of the answer lies in the fact that the earliest polities in the Ethiopian highlands, uh, circa 800 to 400 BCE, parallel to the Iron Age in the Near East, embraced some elements of South Arabian culture. South Arabian style temples were built in Ethiopia. South Arabian gods were worshipped there. South Arabian script was used, and the central South Arabian religious symbol of the disc and crescent um, appears in uh, was used. Some of the Ethiopian kings in this period used the South Arabian royal title of Mukarib, and two inscriptions from this time even refer to Mukarib of Damat, which is the name of an Ethiopian poly at the time, and Saba. So the title was Mukarib of Damat and Saba. So there's your link right there to the kingdom of, of uh, Sheba. So what do all these South Arabian elements in Ethiopia mean? 
So at one time it was thought that the founders of advanced civilization in Ethiopia were South Arabians from the opposite shore of the Red Sea who immigrated there in large numbers. However, with advances in archaeological research, it has become clear that this situation is far more complex. While elements of elite culture, such as temples and inscriptions, were influenced by South Arabian culture, other elements, such as pottery, stone tools, forms of burial, and cultic sites, were of local African origin. Now, had the majority of the population of the early, early Ethiopian polities been of South Arabian origin, we would have expected that the material culture of these polities in general would be affiliated with South Arabian material culture. However, it stands to reason that Ethiopian elites imitated another, a, a number of aspects of the cultural kingdoms on the other side of the Red Sea that were also highly advanced. They were prosperous and powerful as well. So this obviously is not is surprising. It's common in the ancient world as it is today. So perhaps these Ethi ancient Ethiopians even saw themselves as connected in some way with the peoples of South Arabia. And so could it be why some of the Ethiopian monarchs claimed to be Mukarib of Damat and Saba? So this, you know, they, they felt some kind of kinship to this area that was across the, the Red Sea. At the end of the 5th to the beginning of the 4th century BCE, these Ethiopian polities began to decline. So temples became abandoned, indications of South Arabian-influenced elite culture became scarce. And around the 4th century BCE, a new polity was formed on a hill known today as Beta Georgis, which is the Church of St. George Hill. Instead of building monumental temples, the people erected stelae, which are standing stones, on large platforms in association with burials. And these burial fields seem to be the principal cultic center of this polity and continue an African tradition of erecting standing stones on burial fields. So if you really want to break it down into something we can really understand, while stelae tended to be pretty monumental structures, we can kind of see stelae today kind of sort of in our modern culture because of headstones. So when you see a headstone, it's sort of like a stelae. It's got an inscription on it that talks about a person or a place or something like that. So a, a tombstone would be a kind of a modern stelae, if you will. So, um... I'm hard, pardon me, I'm still recovering from the, the allergies. Um, so, between the first central, century BCE and the first century of the Common Era, so that 200 year period, the people of this polity founded a new town, Axum, at the foot of Beta Georgas Hill, and its residents gradually took control of vast territories, forming the kingdom of Axum. At its peak between the 3rd and 6th centuries of the Common Era, the Kingdom of Axum ruled an area extended from the Nile Valley in Sudan, modern-day Sudan, through the north, northern Ethiopian highlands to the Red Sea coast, which is modern-day Atria. And at times, the kingdom also controlled parts of South Arabia, which is modern-day Yemen. And this kingdom would later evolve into modern-day Ethiopia. The Aksumite kingdom has become so important in Ethiopian history that scholars refer to the polity on Beta Georgas Hill as the Proto-Aksumite polity and the Iron Age polities that preceded it as pre-Aksumite. So that's how important Aksum was in the development of Ethiopian history and culture. 
So the material culture, which we know material culture is your pottery, your houses, your actual physical stuff of, of a culture, was in many ways derived from proto-Aksumite predecessor. For example, focus of the cult continued to be burial fields with stelae. The largest includes some of the largest standing stones ever erected, the, the biggest, which is about 107 foot, feet tall. And these stelae are beautifully carved to represent multi-storied buildings constructed in an architectural style unique to Axum. So no large and central pre-Christian Axumite temple is known, at least so far. So again, it's still kind of, you know, early in this discovery. This demonstrates further that in terms of cult and probably identity, proto-Axumites and Axumites followed a tradition different than pre-Axumites. However, a, not all ax, aspects of Axumite culture are derived directly from proto-Axumite culture. Some are affiliated with South Arabia. Axumite coins imitate South Arabian coins. A deity known from South Arabia and other locations in the Middle East, Astar, is mentioned in Axumite inscriptions together with local deities. And the disc and crescent religious symbol became an official Axumite religious symbol. So... Some Aksumite royal inscriptions list the regions under Aksumite control, and the most widespread formula mentions Aksum, followed by Saba and Himyar, the kingdom that inherited Saba as the central South Arabian kingdom in the 3rd century. Now, only then are other religion, regions mentioned, many of which are much closer to the city of Aksum than South Arabia. So it, it's like they're listed in importance. So Aksum is first, then Saba, which is Sheba, of course, and Himnar. So these are the three most important. And then and, and then after that, it's declining importance, even though some of them may have been um, closer geographically than Saba. This demonstrates the importance of South Arabia in the eyes of Aksumite rulers. And interestingly enough, inscriptions claiming Aksumite control over South Arabia appear at times when the Aksumite kingdom did not actually rule South Arabia, indicating the claim of ruling South Arabia was actually ideological rather than physical. So in other words, there was a ideological kinship to the people of Saba rather than a direct colonialized type of rule for lack of a better expression so this wasn't like some sort of situation where Ethiopia actually controlled Saba but it was an ideological kinship that they felt sort of like a intellectual unification if you will <clears throat> so could the appearance of all this South Arabian affiliated element indicate what the ruler that the rulers of the Aksumite kingdom were intentionally advertising their connection with South Arabian heritage with the conquest of the former territories of the pre-Aksumite polities could the Aksumite kings have tried to demonstrate to the peoples of these territories that they were part of the same pre-Aksumite tradition or could renewed contact with South Arabia have re-stimulated Ethiopian interest in the culture. So, of course, you know, you have your decline of one kingdom, but the rise of another one. So when that decline happened, obviously that connection with South Arabia kind of petered out and fell off. And then when Aksum actually started coming to prominence and rising and becoming a, a more powerful kingdom, they wanted to sort of link back to the past, so they brought Saba into an intellectual sort of 
conversation and kinship with Axum. In the 4th century, something happened that would change the destiny of Ethiopia for millennia. Izana, the Axumite king, adopted Christianity. So you can actually, archaeologists actually have looked and can see almost precisely when Izana did this. So the, you can look at his co the coins that are minted during his reign. And those coins are reflective of what was going on in the life of the king at the time. So at the beginning of his rule, he officially followed the polytheistic faith of his predecessors. The latter issue of the coins bear the cross, indicating by the, this, this time he was actually converted. This transformation is also demonstrated in his royal inscriptions. His earlier inscriptions mention deities worshipped in the Axumite kingdom before the spread of Christianity. Mahrem, Astar, Beher, and Meder, an inscription which has been interpreted as representing a transitional phrase, phrase mentions only one god monotheistic the lord of heaven an additional inscription is undoubtedly christian and bears the following formula quote in the faith of god and the power of the father son and holy spirit who saved me the kingdom by the faith of his son jesus christ who has helped me and will always help me unquote an account of the arrival of Christianity to the Axumite Kingdom is described in the ecclesiastical history of the of the Byzantine historian Rufus of Aquilia, written around 400 Common Era. According to Rufinus, two brothers from Tyre, which is in modern-day Lebanon, Frumentius uh, and Odysseus, were on a ship that docked in a forbidden harbor in India, in quotes, which is a name that was generally a catch-all location used in Roman Byzantine times to describe the lands on both sides of the Red Sea and beyond. So it's like that place over there is India. So it's not sub-Asian sub India that we think of today. So for my listeners in India, unfortunately, you got the catch-all. Uh, they used to call India just the, basically everything over there, not specifically where you, you are. Um, and I'm really sorry. I can't, can't do anything about that. And I'm sorry. Um, so from the context that we can kind of understand, um, it can be understood that the harbor served the Axumite kingdom. So the ship was seized, the crew killed, and the two brothers were brought before the king, this Azana. When the king was actually so impressed with them that he gave them administrative positions in court, very much like what happened with Joseph in Egypt. So when the king died, the queen asked the two brothers to share with her the role of regent until the king's son would come of age. Frumentius made use of his authority to aid local Christians and encourage Christians to settle in the realm. And when the new king came to age, came of age, I'm sorry, the two brothers decided to return to Phoenicia. Odysseus returned directly, but Frumentius went to Alexandria, where he beseeched the patriarch Athanasius to appoint a bishop for the newly established Christian community in Axum. Athanasius was so impressed with Frumentius' accomplishments that he appointed him bishop and sent him back to the land for which he had just become. So he was like, okay, well, you did a great job, my friend, so you're going back. 
And you're going to be the bishop. So you think they need a bishop? <laughs> you're it. Archaeological evidence indicated by the 6th century a substantial portion of the population of the heartland of the kingdom of Axum had converted to Christianity. And all the excavated Axumite churches date to the 6th century or later. And especially significant crosses begin to appear on pottery, which is often made by local craftsmen and designed to fit the taste of the general population, unlike coins, which are designed by the government and displayed in official propaganda. So, so in other words, when we have our coins, they are the official government, for lack of a better word, for the legally it's it's propaganda so in the states here we have you know we have lincoln and we have jefferson and we have washington and we have uh roosevelt and we have you know on our, our coins and on our bills you know we've got washington and lincoln and hamilton and all that and jackson and benjamin and all that and grant so that's our official prop american governmental propaganda okay whether you like it or not that's what it is but pottery is the tastes of the general population. In other words, a potter's going to make what's going to sell. And if Christianity wasn't something that appeased to the, uh, was was a was a um, appeasement to the larger population, they're not going to make it because it's not going to sell. It's going to gather dust on the shelves, and that's you know not good. That's not good for business. So. Um, it, it, it's why you can go to, say, example, Walmart, and you can buy and that's why you can buy, you know, some pottery or some dishes uh, there that will sell out like hotcakes, but others ones sit and grow dust on the shelves. They're just not what people want. And so they're not going to be made anymore. In the 6th century, the Axumite kingdom waged a religious war on the kingdom of Himyar, which is Yemen, in the name of Christianity. So let's call it a crusade. Uh, from the 4th century uh, common era, a substantial portion of, of the Himyarite population, as well as Himyarite rulers, had abandoned their old polytheistic faith and embraced Judaism. The Axumites, around the early 6th century, managed to take control of parts of Himyar and advance the Christian religion there. When the Jewish Hemurite king Yusuf Asar Yathar, known in the popular tradition as Dunuas, attempted to regain full Hemurite independence, he waged a war against the Axumite soldiers stationed in Himyar and killed many Christians in his realm. So this obviously infuriated Christian leaders and in uh, and served as the official reason for the campaign waged against Himyar by the Axumite king Caleb. So Caleb conquered Himyar and spread the Christian religion throughout the Him, Himyarite realm. With the advent of Christianity the Axumite, in the Axumite kingdom, several elements of pre-existing culture were given new Christian form. Pre-Christian -pre cultic sites became Christian monasteries. Architectural qualities of Axumite palaces uh, re replicated in relief on Axumite royal stele became typical features of Axumite churches. Funerary cult uh, was given Christian form, as is attested by a number of Axumite funerary churches, as well as funerary churches built in the centuries immediately following the fall of the Axumite kingdom. 
and monumental thrones erected in honor of the aid of the gods and military victories continued to be erected in Christian times, this time in honor of just God. So let's go back, let's circle back to the special connection with South Arabia that the Axumites advertised and maintained. This connection might have also have received a Christian form. As the kingdom of Saba is known in the Bible as the kingdom of Sheba, the claim that the Aksumite kings were also kings of Saba would naturally lead to the claim that they were kings of Sheba. So the affinity of the Aksumite kingdom with South, with South Arabia, which was advertised by the elite and may have been a cornerstone of late antique Ethiopian identity, may have been a step in the process of identification of Ethiopia with the kingdom of Sheba. Thus it would lead uh, to by means of the biblical story of the meeting of the Queen of Sheba and King Solomon to the development of the Cabra, Cabra Nagast narrative that we know today. Therefore, <laughs> while Yemen can claim to be the, rightfully claim to be the place of the historical kingdom of Sheba, Ethiopian culture and Ethiopian Orthodox Christianity can rightfully claim to be based on the biblical heritage of the kingdom. And this heritage has had major impact on Ethiopian Orthodox religion and identity. And the Ethiopian claim can be seen as no less substantial than the Yemenite one. Well, I think that about sums us up for the day. Again, today's article was Arabia or Africa, Where is the Land of Sheba by Bar Kribis. And it appeared in the September, October, uh, 2016 issue of Biblical Archaeology Review. As always, I enjoy hearing from you. Please feel free to email me at kimg.pastandpresentpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at, at podcast underscore past and on Facebook at Rebirth Network and Rebirth Encouraged, both with a purple heart between the words. Um, Please join us on Monday when we will be discussing charitable deeds. And we're going to be starting on chapter 6 of uh, Matthew with uh, this on, our, on our Sermon on the Mount series. So, again, this is Kim Groves. Hoping uh, you have a blessed weekend. And I encourage you to stay blessed and unstressed and unbothered by the rest. Have a great day great weekend.